Well, I want to welcome you again at Door Creek. And if you're a guest here, whether you're here at Sprecher Road, across the way in the chapel, down the road in north side of Madison, or up into Forest, we are really glad that you're here. My name's Mark, one of the pastors, part of the teaching team. And uh, thanks for joining us as we close out our first section of what matters on Friendship Matters. Speaking of friendship, Lori and I have been married now 38 years, and we thought we'd celebrate by biking across Missouri. So a couple weeks ago, we got on our bikes in Sedalia, Missouri, and biked all the way back to St. Louis. We were in St. Louis when Ryan Braun hit the Grand Slam in the top of the ninth, and we are eyewitnesses to the sad faces that walked out of Bush Stadium. <laughs> And being a Cubs fan who hates the Cardinals as much as you do, I was celebrating with you. Let's not talk about the Cubs anymore. All right, so let me do a little review of where we've been with this series. So from the very beginning, here's what we learned as we just did the kind of storyline of the Bible. The first thing is this, we are created by God for friendship, with God, with each other. That's how the storyline opens up. But everything changes when we walk out with Adam and Eve in chapter 3. So Adam and Eve walk away from a friendship with God, and we with them, and everything changed. And the rest of the story from Genesis 3.15, where God gives a promise of a Savior, he's pursuing us back into that relationship. So out of his loving mercy, he's pursuing us to restore our friendship with him. So you could say, and rightly say, that the story from cover to cover is a story about a friendship, a friendship that we were created for with God and each other, a friendship that God is restoring through Christ so that we could be called his friend and even more, his sons and daughters. Then we understood that Jesus, the truest friend, helps us become true friends. And Ryan dug into some of the marks of true friendship. And so a true friend is available and faithful. They encourage and sharpen. They're aware of where we're at and they're forgiving and extending grace to us. And so Jesus is the friend that we've always wanted. He's the friend that we need. He is the friend that we were created for. And our friendship with God is only through Christ and Christ makes us better friends. Friends with God and better friends with each other. And... Christ helps us actually befriend ourselves. That was last week. Kind of a weird topic to think about. But it's right there in the heart of the great commandment. It's kind of just tucked in there between loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then loving our neighbor, and then there's that little line, as ourselves. Love our neighbor. Think about him as much as we think about ourselves. Take care of your neighbor as much as you take care of yourself. And it's the gospel that gives us a balance on how we see ourselves. When, when we position ourselves at the foot of the cross, which is the heart of the gospel, then we're balanced. We're, we're balanced from dipping into this area of pride where we just think so highly of ourselves. And the cross reminds us that we are sinners who need a savior, and Jesus died for us. And so on the other end, it keeps us from just 
just groveling in our shame and trying to cover it up like Adam and Eve and do all this good stuff for God and each other so that, that we'll feel better about ourselves. Because at the foot of the cross, we don't just understand that we're flawed. More fundamentally flawed than we realize, but we're more drastically loved than we could ever have imagined that Christ died because he loved us. And so today, though, we want to talk about befriending others. We want to focus on loving our neighbor, on, on reaching out to what some will call the outsider. So do you remember the first time you felt like an outsider? So growing up in a home where my parents immigrated from Switzerland and my mom constantly was speaking Swiss German, I was very conscious when we got out in public that not anybody else was going to be speaking Swiss German and like this wasn't appropriate. And I felt like an outsider whenever I was around my mom in public speaking Schweizerdeutsch. And I'm telling my mom, Moody, that's what we call her in Swiss German, Moody, we're in America. Don't talk Swiss German now, we're speaking English. Speaking of Swiss German, when I was 16, my parents thought it'd be a great idea for me to go on my own and live with some relatives in my dad's little village and learn French. And then I had an opportunity to travel to the German side and hang out with some of my relatives there, my mother's sister. Beautiful place up on a hill overlooking this lake with this beautiful castle down there. And I was able to take the moped down the hill out to the edge of the water, and there's this great swimming hole. And I remember going there, and I was 16, and there was a bunch of other guys about my age. And they were teasing me, and I didn't know what they were saying. And I felt totally like an outsider. And it's no fun. It's no fun when your parents moved in your junior year, and you're starting in a new school. It's not easy to move into a new neighborhood, to start a new job. It's tough when your friends drop you for new friends or when you feel like throughout school, you've always been, you always have been picked on. No fun at all. But what we're gonna understand here, it's the grace of God that turns an outsider into an insider. So that when God's grace is active in our lives, we can be part of that same story of God using us to take someone who might be called or felt like an outsider to an insider, a friend of God, a daughter, a son. So there's three questions that we're going to work through as we get after this topic. First of all, who are these outsiders that we're to befriend? Second, what does it look like? And third, so what? Why is this important? All right, so who are these other people that we're supposed to befriend? You heard of Malcolm Gladwell? He's this popular writer. He's written a lot of interesting books. He's just come out with a new one called Talking to Strangers. He would 
describe the others as strangers, people that we have a limited knowledge and understanding of, their background, their culture, their perspective, their tradition, their story. And so we make snap judgments as we size them up, trying to understand who they are. And he uses countless examples, including the sad story of Sandra Bland, to show us how we often get it so wrong. I mean, it's one thing to do it with people that we know well, our friends and our families. But when it comes to somebody else, we muck it up so much. So I don't know if you remember the story of Sandra Bland. But she's this beautiful African-American woman, 28 years of age, driving down the road in Texas. She failed to use her blinker. We've never done that, but she failed to use her blinker, and she got pulled over for traffic stop. She was really emotional, and her emotions were completely misread by the officer. So she actually gets arrested. She's put in jail, and in her distress, she ends up hanging herself three days later. Do you remember that story? Malcolm, we use the word strangers. Jesus, we use the word neighbor, right? He calls us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We're to love God and we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. Remember, there was the expert in law that said to Jesus, so what must I do to inherit to work my way to the place where I get heaven. And Jesus says, well, what does the law say? You're an expert in the law. You're a scribe. You know the Old Testament. And so he says this from Luke 10, 27. So the expert in the law answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And when you look at Jesus' life and note the people he served and taught us to serve, here's what we see about the different kinds of people that make up our neighbor. So there are the sinners, like Matthew's friends that he hung out with, Matthew the tax collector. There were the prodigals, the rebels, like Matthew's gang. And then there were the Pharisees, the self-righteous the, the people that thought they didn't need a savior. He hung out with Nicodemus. He hung out with Matthew's friends. He hung out with what he would call the least of these, the poor, the prisoners, the homeless, the hungry. In Luke chapter 4, when he starts his ministry, he starts it with these words, taking and quoting the very words of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, Jesus said, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free. The least of these, like the vulnerable people that are mentioned time and again in the Old Testament, the poor, the widow, the orphan, the stranger in the land, the refugee, if you will. There were people of different races and ethnic backgrounds, from the Samaritan woman who he spoke with, which was a double wow, like, what are you doing talking to a woman? What are you doing talking to a Samaritan woman? These are the mongrel breed, the hated half-breed Jews and all this other mix of Babylonian blood, etc. He hung out with people like the Roman centurion. He hung out with the sick and the physically distressed, the emotionally 
and spiritually distressed, whether it was the lame or the blind or the man with the withered hand or the woman with the issue of blood, the widow whose son had just died, and the demon-possessed man. He hung out with people that came from totally different political backgrounds. So just think about this. In his group of 12 disciples, there was Simon the Zealot. This guy is a nationalist. He has, he sold out for Israel. And then there's Matthew, the tax collector, this Jewish guy who has sold out his soul and the love of his country for Rome to line his own pockets. All kinds of neighbors, the rich and the powerful, from Joseph of Arimathea to his own poor mother, the grieving, the dying, the old, the children, women, men, enemies too. And when you look at all the neighbors that Jesus hung with, we find ourselves in the story because Jesus' love comprehensively loves everyone because he loves the world and everyone in it. So I've been working through in preparation for this series a wonderful book by Scott Sauls, a pastor, and the book's called Befriend. He tells this great story towards the beginning of this gathering of people and friends who are gathering together to pray. And he says, just as they were getting ready to pray, a couple walked in. They weren't part of the group but they'd been invited. Scott didn't know who they were, but it was clear right away that the guy, Matthew, was stone drunk. And his wife had that look on her face like, I'm dying inside here, and would someone please help me? They get into a time of prayer. And to Scott's surprise, all of a sudden, Matthew starts praying. And it's like this long, convoluted prayer that didn't make any sense. God, protect us from the Klingons, the Klingons. God, I really love Jolly Ranchers, and I need a Jolly Rancher. Could you please get me a Jolly Rancher? And then there was something about, God, could you move the bananas to the doghouse? And it's just like, what in the world is going on here? And so when the time of prayer was done, everybody's eye was fixed on Scott, the pro, right, the pastor. What is he going to say? What is he going to do? Well, what would you have done? What would you do? What does it look like to love an outsider, a neighbor like Matt? who's drunk, right, in your prayer meeting. Well, Jesus' teaching in the parable of the Good Samaritan makes a couple of things really clear. So why don't you grab your Bible, and we're in Luke chapter 10, verses 30 through 37. So we're in the same section. The guy's trying to trip Jesus up. How do I inherit the kingdom? You know what the law says. He quotes the great commandment. He said... You have answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. And the guy's like, man, I'm supposed to mess you up, Jesus. You just caught me. And so he's like, okay, one last shot. So who's my neighbor? So that's where we're at in the conversation. Verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, okay, yet Luke, so it's kind of the New Testament 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, third gospel, towards the end, use your table of contents, okay? If you don't know where we are. Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Assume a man from Jerusalem to Jericho is a Jewish man. That would probably be good for you to understand that Jesus was assuming this when he spoke and gave the story. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, this would be like an assistant to the priest in the temple. When he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, remember what I just said about the Samaritan woman? These are hated half-breeds. They've got some Jewish blood, and they've got a lot of non-Jewish blood. They were hated. People walked around Samaria. They didn't want anything to do with them. So Jesus puts the Samaritan in the story, not by accident. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity, had compassion on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So Jesus is making it clear that a neighbor is anyone that we see in need. A person that we have an opportunity to extend mercy to even a person who we might consider an enemy is my neighbor. And what we note about the Samaritan and the story Jesus is telling here is the first thing he did is he saw. He saw and he was moved with pity or compassion. This love and action so that it took courage, right, and sacrifice, sacrifice of time. He spends the night. He's going to come back. He's spending denarii. He's spending his own money. There is a risk involved. There's a commitment, uh, an act of his will that may not have been rooted in feelings, but rooted in his will to seek the good of this man who might have walked by if the roles were reversed. So we note that how we see people is first and foremost. And here's what we know as Christ followers. The word is clear. And it goes way before our constitution. That we're created in the image of God. There isn't anybody you're going to see this week. In any place that you could imagine. There isn't any horrific story that you hear where whatever that person has done or allegedly has done is not still created in the image of God. Genesis 1.26 and Psalm 8 verse 5 says, crowned with glory and honor. That's how we see people. But it's hard. It's really hard. As Gladwell says in his book and other lectures, 
it's so easy to get it wrong. As we encounter the other that we don't know and we size them up with what we think we know. So let me give you an example. Uh, our men's group, we love adopting a teacher and we've been adopting Kathy Gilmer Nelson in the fifth grade class over at Shank for years now. And one of the things we love to do is we go cook breakfast because Kathy said so many of these kids are hungry when they come to school. So we can flip cakes, right? We can do French toast. And so we do that. So last time we were there, one of the little fifth grade girls was all curled up in her desk. Knees were up, sweatshirt kind of over the knees. The hood was over the face. And she was just like this. So what's going on? Maybe she's sick. Maybe she's really tired, had a really bad night. Well, until we talk to Kathy, we, we don't know. And we can, we can size it up in our mind. Kathy says, oh, this is, this is how it is every morning. It's really hard for her back home. Let me give you another example. He used to sit like right here, but not here in Wheaton. And it wasn't a chair, it was a pew. And his back was always to the pew, and he always had his hands like this, and his eyes were closed. And I'm going, Julius, like this guy was a prof at Wheaton Grad School. I'm going, Julius, if my sermons are that bad, and you're going to fall asleep in my sermons, could you at least do it in the back row? It's so unnerving to see people fall asleep. Hey, I was just checking. All right. <laughs> Seeing people fall asleep when you're preaching. So... You know, the Lord humbled me. So right before, you guys know this, right before we came to Door Creek, I had this year of sabbatical, and we built a cabin, and I've never worked so hard in my life, and you're out in the air working 60, 70, 80 hours, physical labor, and I get to Little Bethel Baptist Church, and I was doing everything I could to keep my eyes awake, and the Lord was saying, see, sometimes people are just plain tired is why. It has nothing to do with you, so stop it. Anyways, <laughs> so... I'm thinking Julius is sleeping through my sermons. And then Julius comes up to me after one of my sermons, and he starts talking to me about everything I said in my sermon. And I realized he's not asleep. He's just, hmm, thinking about everything. that. It, so why is this hard? Because it's so easy to look at someone that we don't know or someone, I knew that guy. I thought I knew what was going on. So let me mention some things that make this hard. Loving our neighbor, the person that we don't know that's in our path. Fear. Fear's a big one. I think that's probably what happened with the policeman. He got afraid. Things escalated. He didn't see it for what it was. He saw it as a, a fearful situation. Maybe he was in danger. He had to control that instead of show compassion to this woman who was emotionally distraught. Fear's a real easy one. I mean, you think about the Good Samaritan, like, man, is this like a trap? Is there someone behind the rocks and I'm the next guy? We get that, right? We've heard the stories. Pride. I mean, you think about the priest and the Levite, like, man, I... I'm like an important guy. I work for God, and I've got a really busy day here, and this, I don't do this kind of stuff. You know, I do the big stuff. 
like sacrifices and offerings and teaching God's word. Pride, busyness, which I actually thought for the first time, huh, I wonder if busyness is just our way of just calling selfishness by another name so we feel better. I'm just so busy. I don't want to take time out of my day because I'm too important. Maybe there's a selective memory like what happened last Thursday. So Thursday was our anniversary. Did I tell you? 38 years? 38 years. Yeah, that's worth cheering about, man, these days. So um, before we went out to dinner downtown, we wanted to go bring a meal over to some friends that were going through a really hard time. And so we were with them, better part of an hour, and we were listening and we prayed and we're just caring for our friends who are hurting. I think we did pretty well. And, and just in just a few minutes of driving from their house to downtown and parking, we were all excited to go to the Grays. We liked the Grays. We liked the big windows. We liked looking at the Capitol through the glass windows, and the sun had set, and the Capitol was lit. And as we walked in, I just noticed, wow, there's a lot of homeless people on this stretch of the square. I didn't, didn't know there were homeless people. And then there was, we, we got like this great table, like right in the corner, looking right up at the Capitol. And then as I looked out the window, I noticed that one of the homeless people had set up a bucket, and I'm, in, I'm serious. This is your pastor, true confessions. I'm going, really? Like, and like, I didn't see. I just, I just size it up. I put a label on it. This is a homeless person. I can work it out either in alcohol, drugs, mental illness, bigger than anything I can do. And so I didn't see them. Anything more than the label. They're a homeless person. And then it kind of became like an inconvenience. Like, wow, this is like a special, like we don't do this every day. And I like want to just kind of be here with my wife. And I don't want to be thinking about this homeless person right off the edge of the table, so to speak. So there's no pity. There's no compassion. There's like, let's get out of here. And so, so what I remember is that first hour. I did that really well. Yeah, I'm that kind of guy. And uh, I don't remember the others. Selective memory. It's really easy to do. And then, and I think I just alluded to it, sometimes what's hard is, is just the need is overwhelming. And we don't know where to start. And we figure, well, we can't fix this issue, so there's nothing to do here. Well, maybe it's more simple than we think. So Scott Sauls, you know, tells the rest of the story. He said, so when the prayer ended and everybody was looking at me, like, I didn't know what to do. And thankfully, I didn't have to do anything because one of the women in the group got up and in her loving, wise way, she took a plate of chocolate chip cookies and went over to Matt and said, would you like a cookie? And she started to carry on a pretty bizarre conversations about Clans and Jolly Ranchers while the rest of the group went and talked to his wife and asked, how can we help you? How can we help you? And so we think like we've got to do everything and maybe all God's asking us to do is just like, do you need a cookie? Well, those are reasons why it's hard 
Let me suggest, though, Jesus' teaching is simple. And so we're overthinking it sometimes. And so it's probably good to catch up with his teaching, what we often call the golden rule, in Luke chapter 6. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If I was Matt right now, how would I like to be treated? Well, I don't want to be embarrassed, right? So this is like a simple teaching that guides us as we encounter our neighbor, the other, someone that we don't know. How would we like them to treat us if the tables were turned. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. Not just future reward, but your reward today. Because he's going to say later on in the chapter that your word is eternal life. But John 17 verse 3 works it out that eternal life isn't just something in the future. Eternal life is something we experience today through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Your reward will be great, and you'll be sons and daughters of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. And so when Saul's talked about that group of people, he called them a mob of grace, the grace mob. And they were following the king of grace. And they were walking in his steps and Truly, his hands and feet. And it reminds us a lot of Jesus' response to the woman caught in adultery, John chapter 8. So here's the story. There's a woman who's caught in the act of adultery. So this sounds like a complete setup. How does that happen? Anyways, it happened. They bring her to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, you know what the law says. Yeah, the law says in Leviticus, you stone an adulterer. Male, female, both of them, whatever. You stone them. They're out. What do you think we should do? Trying to trap him. The text says that Jesus got on his knee and he starts writing in the sand. That'll be one of our questions in heaven. What did you write in the sand, Jesus? But we know what he said. He said, all right, you're ready to stone her, right? So here's the deal. Whoever is without sin, you throw first. Jesus is still writing on his knees. And if we were there, here's what we would hear. Thump, 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 thump. And the text says, from the oldest to the youngest, that ought to be instructive, younger people. From the oldest to the youngest, they walked away. So Jesus looks up. He straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So gracious. And notice how he leads. He doesn't say, all right, that was a close call, wasn't it? So here's what I want you to do. Leave your life of sin and know this. I'll never condemn you. I didn't say that. 
I don't condemn you. Now leave your life of sin. You might go, what's the big deal? That's a huge deal. If we don't get that order right, we lose Christ and the gospel. We turn salvation into a good work that we can achieve. And, and that is not the gospel. That is the distinction of Christianity compared to any and all other ways to God is the free gift of God's grace offered through his son that is received by faith, bringing us into that reconciled relationship with God. And if we get this wrong, all we're left with is religion. There is no relationship. And there's all this religious work and activity that is exhausting, and it leaves the person completely unsure. Because the nagging question is, is it good enough? Well, when you start reading the Bible, you realize it's not a nagging question. Jesus says, you're supposed to be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. And so we're unsure, we're unsatisfied, we're restless, lacking hope, and searching for lasting joy. So why is this important? Why does this matter? Well, personally, for each of us, and collectively for all of us, this is our story, you guys. The Bible has made it clear. We were his enemies. We were on the outside. And, and so this is our story, and we need to come to grips with the implications of it. If we haven't placed our trust in Christ and received this free gift from God, then we aren't in a right relationship with him. We are out of position to experience all that he has for us and all that he wants to do through us. Have you done that? Have you surrendered your life in faith to Christ? You can do that today. And, and for those of us who say, I remember when, are we continually walking with Christ in this posture of complete dependence and trust? Because it's not like the key through the front door. It's everyday faith. It's everyday repentance, turning away from the things that I would trust in rather than Christ. And for all of us at Door Creek that call Door Creek home, whether you're in DeForest or Northside or right here at Sprecher Road, there is no way we could possibly fulfill the vision that we have and believe God has for us to be a Christ-centered church. How does it go? For all people. If we don't get this right, if we're not transformed by his love and allowing his powerful grace to give us new hearts and new desires and a willingness to take on the paradox of actually finding our life as we give it away to other people, even to the stranger, to the least of these, to the outsider, to our neighbor. The scriptures tell us this is how we know we love God. In 1 John 3, 16, we read this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. 
And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and see a sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. You cannot love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength if you do not love your neighbors yourself. And neighbor, Jesus says, goes all the way to our enemies. This is how we know that we love God. It's how we love Jesus. He said, whatever you did to the least of these, the prisoner, the poor, the naked, the hungry, you did it to me, Matthew 25. And it's a gracious call to befriend and love our neighbor that frees us from selfishness and it frees us from, from getting out of balance, whether it's the pride continuum or the shame continuum. As we have our eyes on God and others. And it's a wonderful invitation to join God and to share in the joy. So Scott concludes the story. He says, that night was the most transformative night that he's ever been a part of in his whole life. He says this, the offer of a cookie led to this wave of grace which surrounded the couple and their two young boys which led to a month of rehab and then to sobriety, to a restored marriage, and then to Matt becoming a Christ follower. And years later, Matt became one of the leaders in Scott's church. Now, what do you think it would be like to be in church and to see that couple, to see those boys growing up? And you knew that you were there the night when Matt was praying for Jolly Ranchers. What do you think that would be like? It'd be awesome. That the grace of God that can change an outsider to an insider could actually flow through us to see someone else become a friend of God. And so my challenge this week is eyes wide open. See people as God sees them. And the test is going to be as simple as driving down the belt line tomorrow when you run into every idiot and jerk that you have every other day. <laughs> and you're going to remember, I don't, know, I don't know all the story. And I'm going to remember they're created in the image of God. And the challenge is that we'd open our hearts like Jesus. That we'd remember that loving like Jesus is something that is caught more than it is taught and so you hang around people who've caught it from Jesus and you hang out with Jesus in his word, his spirit in you. You're, you're in step with the spirit so that you let him guide you, even if it's handing out chocolate chip cookie this week. So who's God wanting you to move toward? What does that first step look like? And how about you guys as a small group, as a ministry team, just as a family digging into the subject and going, all right, how, how, could, we, how could we do this? So I want you to know there's all kinds of on-ramps if you're stuck, because you shouldn't be. There's people in your world right now that are on the outside of whatever it is they don't think they're on the inside of, and they could use a little kindness. But man, if you don't know, let us help you adopt a teacher so you can love on a bunch of kids, and I guarantee you'll find them in that class. 
In a couple of weeks, we're going to start this new online connection thing. It's so cool. So that you as an individual, a couple, a family, a life group, whatever, can go online, serve now, and see, here are the things that we could do this week to make a difference in someone else's life to the glory of God. Let's be those kind of people who follow Christ. Let's pray. So, Lord, we were on the outside, and we didn't know it. And you were up in heaven knowing it full well. And you left the comforts to come down to us. And when you did, we didn't want you. We didn't think we needed you. We pushed you all the way out to the cross where you showed us clearly what true love is like. Change us with your love. Soften our hearts with your love. Hear our confessions, Lord, to the places that we've been and the attitudes that we've held to people or an individual that do not honor you. And help us to be able to better join you in this world, extending your grace so that many more would be called your friend. Christ's name, God's people said, amen.